Good evening, listeners. It is the 10th of February, 2019, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lori Lutz. And I'm Scott Classic. Here at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and the personal stories of one of these students each week. So if you're a graduate student here and you're interested in coming on the show or if you just want to figure out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, um, you can check out our blog, blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. And we also have a podcast available on iTunes. So if you search for inspiration dissemination and look for the orange light bulb logo, that's where you'll find us. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Don Barlow. Don is a first-year PhD student with Dr. Lee Torres in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife in the College of Agricultural Sciences. Welcome and thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. So your research focuses on conservation efforts of a genetically distinct blue whale population in New Zealand, which is super cool. Um, I think we're so, all jealous of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so could you tell us a little bit more about this blue whale population and what makes it particularly vulnerable? Yeah, so I am lucky enough to study a pretty unique population of blue whales in New Zealand. Um, and so I'm in my first year of my PhD, but I actually um, started this work as part of my master's degree, um, also with Dr. Lee Torres. And so this is a population that we've been able to um, determine as being distinct and pretty unique through a really multidisciplinary approach. And that was only possible through a really pretty incredible collaborative team I was part of, including my advisor, Lee Torres, and collaborators also at OSU, as well as Cornell and universities in New Zealand and Australia. And so we studied them using kind of a number of techniques. We used acoustics so that we put out hydrophones on the seafloor. And they recorded blue whale song on 99% um, of the recording days throughout a year. So we were able to say, okay, there are blue whales in this one area of New Zealand, which is between the North and South Islands, during um, just about every day of the year. Um, and then we were able to, to use photo identification. So that's um, a technique that basically that you take photos and you look at the pigmentation patterns um, and you can tell individuals apart much in the same way as you can tell humans by their fingerprints. So through this photo identification, we are able to determine that, okay, it's the same individuals, many of the same individuals that are occurring in this area um, throughout the year and from one year to the next. And then we collected genetic samples to be able to um, compare this population, the genetics of this population to other known populations. And we were able to determine that it's distinct population. And finally, we used um, some abundance modeling to be able to um, get a first abundance estimate, which is that there are about 700 um, blue whales in this population. So that was exciting, but there's kind of more going on in this area called the South Taranaki Bight than um, just the whales being there. It's also New Zealand's most industrial marine region. Um, there's active oil and gas exploration that uses seismic surveying, which is these loud air gun sounds that are used to explore for petroleum. 
There's um, existing oil and gas platforms, there's shipping traffic, and there's a pretty contentious proposal for a seabed mine. And so now um, what we're interested in is kind of looking at when and where do we find these blue whales in this area and how do they overlap with all of this um, industrial activity in the area. So that sounds really cool. And also, um, I'm gathering that it's definitely a big thing to discover and like sort of catalog a new population of whales where like they weren't available or I mean, they weren't like seen in that area before. Yeah. So this... um kind of started as a hypothesis that my advisor Lee Torres put forward um, that this South Taranaki Bight area of New Zealand might be um, an undocumented feeding ground of blue whales um, for blue whales in the southern hemisphere. And this was kind of, she pulled together these pieces of evidence, including whaling records and um, looking at the oceanography to say that there was a lot of productivity in the area. Um, and then the field work through the field work and the analysis of the data, we were able to kind of corroborate that hypothesis that there are blue whales there. They're there year-round, and they're a unique population, which is pretty exciting. So not only is this population genetically unique, but it's my perception, and maybe because I'm not a marine biologist, this is incorrect, but whales generally migrate. So is it also unique that these whales are staying in this area, and it seems to be, from what you've identified, that it's the same whales in the same area year-round? Yeah, so that's a really good question and one we've kind of been puzzling over for a while. Um, the paradigm is that large baleen whales like blue whales migrate between high latitude feeding grounds and low latitude breeding grounds and that there's kind of this differentiation. Um, so kind of in that context, it is unique that there may be, that these whales might be there year round. Of course, we don't have the data to say that it is exactly the same whales that are there throughout the entire year. Um, but some mm -hmm. portion of this population we know is there during every month of the year, yeah. And then it's just sort of like another thing to sort of set the scene, right? I think you mentioned to us earlier that no one has documented um, where blue whales go to give birth and to, to calve, is that the right word? Yeah. Um, but you're seeing this population that seems to be here year round, and that seems to be some kind of evidence that, um, well, maybe it's not the same whales that are, you know, giving birth, but um, could that suggest that maybe it's not too far away that they are, you know, reproducing or something? And is that like a, a big deal in blue whale research? Yeah, it potentially is. So um, it's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it that the biggest animal on Earth, and we still don't actually know definitively where they breed, there are some suspicions of that, of a population that breeds off of um, in an area called the Costa Rica Dome in the Pacific Ocean. Um, there are some kind of, there are some, some knowledge of migratory patterns, but it's really hard to actually observe something like that in the wild. So um, what's exciting about this population that we study in New Zealand is that we we re have recorded song, which is what's thought to be associated with breeding behavior. Um, we've seen this these kind of competitive behavioral displays that might be in association with breeding behavior. And then we've documented very, very young calves and high numbers of calves, including nursing behavior. So that's that's as much as we can say <laughs> definitively, gotcha. yeah. but they are definitely using this area for a number of different functions and during all times of the year. And so just as this was sort of like, oh, we've got a new population of blue whales here, um, 
people want to mine the seafloor here and it's just uh, it's an active shipping area so um it seems to be like there's a lot of challenges associated with that yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's been this kind of ongoing contentious proposal for to mine iron sands from the seafloor in the South Taranaki Bight, and that proposal is to extract 50 million tons of iron sands per year for a 35-year period. Um, and our research was really um, highlighted in these um, higher court hearings in New Zealand. So that was interesting, and it actually got overturned in high court and now is back in environmental court. But Definitely this kind of documentation of blue whales use of the area played a big role in the legal discussions around the seabed mining. Um, and then also, it, yeah, the blue whales have brought attention to certainly the oil and gas industry in the area. Um, actually, there was a in the last Austral summer, so last kind of December through February, there was a lengthy seismic survey of the area, and that means um, an air gun blast every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in this area for basically a three-month period. Wow. And at the start of that, there was actually a rally, a Greenpeace-led a rally in front of Parliament in Wellington featuring a giant inflatable blue whale. And this kind of blew our minds that, wait a second, the blue whale is kind of has become in some way a symbol of... Um, Kind of this conflict in the area. And so since then, there's actually been an effort to um, potentially establish a marine sanctuary or a marine mammal sanctuary in this area. And so our upcoming research will hopefully play into those decisions as well. So um, you've done some data collection with your master's research and are moving into your PhD research. So um, I am particularly curious about how um, how you collect what what sort of data you're collecting and how this data is collected. Yeah, so we collect a whole myriad of data when mm -hmm. we're out there. Um, because ship time is hard to come by. So basically, when we've been out there, the um, Lee, my supervisor, has done a really excellent job of trying to collect kind of any facet of data that we can. So now we have really a wealth of information to work with. So like I mentioned, we collect genetic material, and that's in a couple of different ways, including biopsy sampling. So that involves firing a lightweight little dart out of a modified air rifle, and it bounces off the side of a whale, and it includes um, a, skin, a little plug of skin and blubber. Um, they don't seem to mind it. <laughs> and um, that... Just be like a little needle prick to yeah, us. Yeah, or, or a mosquito bite or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so that is then used for genetic analysis and stable isotopes and hormone analysis. We also, as often as we can, scoop up blue whale poop because that contains genetic data and also hormone data. So I'm going to stop you right there. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else has read the book Everyone Poops. But there is like a two-page spread dedicated to what does whale poop look like. So now I feel like it's a really good time to ask an expert, <laughs> what does whale poop look like? Well, blue whale poop is kind of pinkish, a little reddish, um, because they eat krill. And the krill are kind of pinkish. So, yep. Makes it's sense. It's pretty brightly colored, actually. It makes it nice and easy to see if you're trying to <laughs> really quickly scoop it up before it dissolves. <laughs> so when people are, like, when you're going out to hit a blue whale with a dart, you're yeah. 
going onto a smaller boat, right? Yes. There's like a couple of you in this smaller boat, and you're approaching the largest animal that has ever existed on Earth. Yeah. Um, How close do you get? Um, Let me preface this by it's all permitted. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But we do, yeah, we do get pretty close. I mean... Um, our, we try and do it as min, in a really minimally invasive way, so we try not to approach the whales too often or too close if we can avoid it. We just at kind of very at the end of a, an interaction with the whale go in to take a biopsy sample and leave them be, and the biopsies are taken by some really excellent rangers with the New Zealand Department of Conservation. And so, oh, how close? I mean, within 20-ish feet, but often farther if we can yeah we can mm-hmm. make it happen wow. <laughs> yeah and if you want to see any photos of some of this work there are some beautiful photos um that don provided that are on the blog so you can check that out and there is one of the small infa- inflatable boat where um, these rangers are trying to get a biopsy sample so yeah there's cool. also an incredible <laughs> photo from a drone that shows a blue whale lunging to try and scoop up as many krill as it can. And yeah. that's an amazing photo. You need to check it out. Mm-hmm. Blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Um, and that brings me to sort of what your, re- like the main questions of your research are involved. And um, so you're looking at how the blue whales feed. Um, they feed on krill. Yes. And so what determines how you, like what sort of data do you need to collect to build this model of where are the blue whales going to go, and what determines where the krill are in a particular area? Yeah. So while we're out there, we also we not only are looking for blue whales, but we're also studying the environment that the blue whales are in, and we can do describe that in a number of different ways. Um, blue whales are specialist predators; they're picky eaters, um, and, and so they feed pretty much exclusively on krill. Um, And so in order to map out where the krill are, we use what's called an echo sounder. And it's this transducer that sits under the boat and it sends out pings, um, two pings a second. And then it bounces back off of whatever whatever those pings hit. And by measuring the strength of what's called that backscatter, we can look at where the krill are and map out how deep are the krill, how thick are the aggregations of krill, how dense are the aggregations and... um, how how many kind of swarms of krill are there in any given area? And so then in addition to looking at the krill, we also do what are called CTD casts, and that stands for conductivity, temperature, and depth. But basically what that allows us to look at, it's, it's this gadget that we drop down into the water um, kind of as deep as it can go and then bring it back up. And that'll tell us about what sort of boundaries there might be in the water column that um, like where where does the temperature change? Where does the salinity change? Because those are things that are going to influence how the krill may be aggregated. Okay, so yeah, because there's like different density levels. So there's like maybe you know some less dense seawater sitting on top of some denser. Yeah, exactly. And those okay. at those boundaries, that's been kind of shown to be a place where something like krill would pile up, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, and so. Blue whales have this, you mentioned that image of the blue whale lunge feeding on the krill. 
It's a pretty striking image. It doesn't really get old. But um, so they're the, this, they have this really specialized feeding technique where they lunge. And so they open their mouth really wide and they engulf this big mass of water and any krill that's in there. But that costs a lot of energy to lunge. So they actually need the krill to be at a certain density or a certain amount of accessible for it to even be worth feeding for them. Otherwise, they lose energy feeding. So being able to locate those really good prey patches is really important to their survival. So by identifying these regions where the krill are located and therefore where you suspect the blue whales to be, is the idea to like draw a line in the sand? Or this is sort of a dynamic system. So what is the... Um, management goal here? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question and that's a really good segue into what my PhD research is kind of going to entail. Um, so in, in the marine environment, it's really it's a really dynamic system, right? Things move, the, the ocean moves, the currents move the water, the prey moves, so the krill moves and the blue whales move. So setting a rigid boundary saying, this is a sanctuary or this is a park is it's not quite as straightforward as that. So um, kind of the work that I'm doing is trying to see if we can, based on our knowledge of how the blue whales and the krill interact with the, the oceanography in the system to be able to predict where they're going to be and under what conditions, at least on a seasonal scale, so that under certain conditions we might expect the blue whales to be in one area but not another, um, and kind of vice versa. So as far as industry is concerned, it may be a little bit more palatable to, rather than a rigid boundary saying never um, operate in this area ever, say, okay, maybe curb your operations under these conditions um, until they shift and then you can continue operating. But that's a little tricky, so we're trying to work out. Yeah, yeah <laughs> imagine. Um, and so is it a fair assumption to make that when you've got a krill aggregation, like a bunch of dense, you know, krill clusters, like the whales are going to find them or like how good are they at finding them? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one that researchers in the field have puzzled over for a while. So um, it's hard to know exactly how these big ocean predators, blue whales and anything else actually find their food. But um one thing we think is that it's kind of different senses that operate on different scales. At a really fine scale, it's probably visual, like when it's lining up that lunge on the of krill on the image that you see. Um, but more broadly, they might be picking up on other environmental conditions, like changes in changes in the environment that may um, influence where the their prey are most likely to be. Um, one thing that's this kind of unique about this area is it has this upwelling system, which um, means that it's there's this wind-driven, the wind basically mixes the top layer of the water and allows nutrients from down deep to mix with the sunlight, and that creates phytoplankton blooms, which is the little plant life that the krill feed on. And then the whales obviously want to be where the krill are. So this kind of predictability of an upwelling system is a unique cue that the blue whales might be keying in on. And so that's that's what sort of like your um, habitat modeling approach is taking a look at, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So we're interested. Uh, what I'm really interested in doing is modeling these kind of these steps, these ecological links between the environment. So um, that includes wind, that includes the oceanography, um, like what I was talking about, structures in the water column and things like sea surface temperature. Um, between the oceanography and the krill, and between the krill and the whales, and between the whales and the oceanography. Um, yeah, to see kind of what those links are and how they interplay with one another. Very cool. Thanks. So if you are just tuning in, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We are talking with Don Barlow, who is a first-year PhD student in fisheries and wildlife, and she studies blue whales in New Zealand. So Don, um, I am curious as to how you got interested in whale research and maybe more generally in the sciences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so growing up, the ocean has always been a really big part of my life. <clears throat> um, I grew up in Northern California near the coast, and um, my parents are also both very much ocean people, so I think I was lucky in that sense. So I, on some on some level, I think I've always known that I wanted to study the ocean. Um, in college, I was, in my undergrad, I was a biology major, um, but just kind of for kicks took an environmental policy class. Um, and that kind of made me realize that there is often a disconnect between the kind of the science that goes into conservation or management and the, the how that's implemented in terms of policy. So I kept taking classes in that and kind of ended up with a second major of environmental policy. So what I'm really interested in is kind of this um, applied conservation biology research. So how to, I would like to be on the science end, but do the science that kind of really inform conservation and management of ocean ecosystems. And as far as marine mammals and whales, I was lucky enough to be part of some really great internships in college, um, including um, with Flinders University in Australia studying bottlenose dolphins, and then um, with Alaska Whale Foundation in Southeast Alaska studying humpback whales. Um, yeah, and that kind of led me to the connections to start my graduate degree at Oregon State. I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more about, um, so you mentioned the sort of disconnect between the, like the biology and the conservation aspects. And um, I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts about like, is it that the people who are trying to make sense of all the studies and apply them through conservation, like it, it, are they, they're like not biologists. And so there are there, is there something that they don't understand? that like the biologists could inform them more of or like so where what's yeah. sort of the main hurdle or hurdles yeah well i think it's i think there's becoming there's there's more and more awareness of this i think there's way more effort in terms of science communication and stuff at least on the science end to make your work more accessible um but as far as what i would consider to be the barrier it's it's almost a bit like a language barrier, right? Scientists are trained to be scientists and present their work to scientific colleagues and managers are trained in policy and management. Um, and so I think as a scientist who's interested in conservation, it's important to kind of know the conservation policy arena that your work may 
inform and to kind of, yeah, be in, be informed about what your work might be informing, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So you can help bridge that gap. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you mentioned these internships, which seem really amazing. How did you get involved with those? How, how did you get to have those opportunities? Um, emailing people is the short answer. Perfect. But, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I came across, the most of the two examples I gave, I came across on the, what's called the MarMAM listserv. Um, but yeah, basically researching researching these labs or organizations that I might be interested in working with and sending an email expressing my interest. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, I think being bold and doing that um, is really an important message, I think, yeah. for, for people, undergraduates and just anyone interested in getting more involved, like don't be yeah, afraid don't to put yourself out to there. Yeah. Reach out, um, do background research first, so you send right. an informed <laughs> email, but then Absolutely. do not hesitate to um, reach out to people you might be interested in working with. Yeah. So you uh, you did a second internship after the one with bottlenose dolphins in Australia. Mm-hmm. You went up to Alaska and you're looking at humpback whales, and yeah. uh, you got a publication out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about about that? It looked like a cool study. Yeah, that um, I had this pretty great opportunity to spend a field season. It was about three months on a little island in southeast Alaska, and that was an acoustics project. So we had a hydrophone out in the water, and we were listening to humpback whales. Um, and that led to my undergraduate senior thesis, um, and then. Um, ended up submitting the kind of findings from that for publication in my first year of grad school. Yeah, and that kind of, I think that that experience of being part of developing a project, collecting the data, um, working closely with mentors on the analysis and then seeing it through to publication was Mm -hmm. a really um, good experience early in my career. I'm pretty grateful for that. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity. And then, so how did you come to OSU, or how did you choose OSU uh, for grad school? I mean, did you, you knew you wanted to continue working with um, whales or marine mammals, and yeah. So um, I knew I was interested in marine mammals and ecology, um, especially kind of this applied conservation ecology work. Um, I found a lab that I was really interested in working with, and that's the lab I'm in currently, which is supervised by Lee Torres, and it's the Geospatial Ecology of Marine Megafauna Lab. And that's a mouthful, but basically what all of us study is um, kind of big marine predators, including seabirds and marine mammals, um, and how they kind of interact with their environment in space and time. And so this was a good fit for me in terms of research interests and then the project that I've mentioned is really in many ways a culmination of my research interests in terms of exciting ecology, but also really applied in terms of conservation and management measures that can come out of it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, I also wanted to say that um, um, just a few weeks ago we had Lisa Hildebrandt on, who's yeah. also in the Geospatial Ecology of Marine Mammals Lab, um, studying gray whales off of the coast here in Oregon. Yeah. Um, so you guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. Yeah, we are. We have projects in many areas and on many kind of aspects of marine megafauna. It's an exciting mm-hmm. group to work with. I'm really cool. grateful for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So when you came to do your master's, did you know you wanted to do the PhD or what what made you pursue the PhD after completing your master's? Um, I really love the project and there are so many more questions to yeah. be asked. Um, and I really love research, so I wanted to be able to stay in research um, for a while longer. Yeah, and to follow up on really the, the work that I was part of for my master's was a a first step in, okay, now there's this population of blue mm-hmm. whales, but there's so much more to be learned about them. And right. Yeah, and like I said, I really love the people that I'm working with, and the project is a good fit for me that I was not ready to step away from it yet. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> so we have a new... Uh, you going to make it a new tradition now? Yeah, I'm going to make it a new tradition when I'm on. Okay. When I'm on. Yeah. All right. So my new tradition, uh, starting tonight, it's called our Kidspiration Question. So um, I've become aware that we do have a younger audience for this show sometimes. And so um, I have a question for you from Olivia. She's five years old. And she wants to know, do, bla- do blue whales have sharp teeth? So that's a great question from Olivia. And... Um, The answer is no, they don't have sharp teeth. They actually don't even have teeth. Blue whales are, (laughs) blue whales are, um, they're called baleen whales, and all of the really big whales are baleen whales, like humpback whales and fin whales and gray whales. Um, And so instead of teeth, they have what's called baleen, and it's, um, these hangs down in kind of these big plates from their upper jaw. And it's made out of a similar structure. It's like what your hair or fingernails are made out of. And it's basically like these big brushes that hang down from the top of their mouth instead of teeth. And so when they scoop up a big mouthful of water that has krill in it, then they push the water out through the baleen and it acts like a big strainer. And it catches the krill. And then that's how they eat without any teeth. Awesome. <laughs> but there are other whales that do have teeth, right? Yes, yeah. there are. Yeah, like mm-hmm. orcas or killer whales have teeth and sperm right. whales have mm-hmm. teeth. And yeah, the dolphin family all has teeth. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, Olivia, for your question. And yeah, thank you, Don, for answering that. <laughs> no <Yeah>. problem. <laughs> all right. So uh, we have a few other traditions here um, at Inspiration Dissemination. And one of them is you. Um, we ask you to choose some advice that you would give to um, a younger version of yourself. It could be, um, any of the undergrads who might be listening to this show, or it could be directed at really anyone at all. Um, so (laughs) what is your advice and, uh, who is it for? Um, well, the first bit, I think I touched on in your earlier question of how I found some of the internships that were, that were really influential to me is that, um, don't be afraid to contact people you might be interested in working with. Uh, that's, I guess, for, I mean, anyone looking for kind of either even just dabbling in whatever field you're interested in, in this case, marine mammals, but yeah, whatever might interest you. Um, and yeah, craft an informed email and then click send because that's <laughs> how, um, yeah, that has gotten me quite a ways. And then the other piece of advice I would give for someone who is looking for maybe a graduate program or looking for a lab to be in is um, find a lab that you love and a project that you love because you're not necessarily going to love every bit of data analysis and grad school is hard but if you have a project that you love then that will you that will kind of carry you through um 
yeah, then you can know what you're working towards and a lab that you love um, to kind of support one another. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I think that's excellent. Yeah. So our other tradition is for you to choose a song that we are going to outro on. So can you tell us what song you chose and why you chose it? <laughs> this is kind of a silly choice, but this is um, <laughs> Holland Oates, um, You Make My Dreams, because this was our theme song during the 2017 field season. Our captain, fondly referred to as Captain Razzle Dazzle, declared this our <laughs> theme song at the beginning of the field season, so it seemed only appropriate to include it here. <laughs> Love it. All right. So thank you, Dawn, for you so coming on and talking with us tonight. Yeah, um, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. So all right. You Make My Dreams by Hall and Oates. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs>